Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 320, MacArthur's Great Escape, Part 1. As far back as January 10th, MacArthur believed, rather, he interpreted a message from General Marshall, that significant help was on the way. And this is what he told his subcommanders on Pataan during his one visit there during the war. Further, the general had stopped at several field hospitals to tell the men the same thing as well. Help was definitely on the way. We must hold out until it arrives. When MacArthur left, returning to Corregidor, ten miles away, a rumor started going around that can be summed up with the ditty, Crafty Mac, he'll never be back. Now, any good leader will tell you, There's a fine line between saying something to inspire the troops and making promises you can't keep, or in this case, you can't control. Upon his return, MacArthur raised the stakes by telling President Kazan that the morale of the troops was high and that he felt confident that he, really the men, could hold Bataan and Corregidor for several months without outside help. Again, controlling expectations is key to leadership. But as Kazon was suffering, really dying from tuberculosis, maybe the general wanted the Filipino leader to have something to smile about. Either way, it was reckless. As for the help, well, the days went by, which turned into weeks, and the food was growing more scarce and worse in quality. From this and many other factors, the label Dugout Dug started making the rounds. Now, this could be a compliment. There's old Doug down with us in the foxhole, defying the enemy. But MacArthur wasn't in a foxhole, not with his one and only visit to Bataan. So, as soldiers are wont to do, especially during a lull, they made up poems about their leader. One has this as its first verse. Dugout Doug MacArthur lies a-shaking on the rock, Safe from all the bombers and from any sudden shock, Dugout Doug is eating the best food on Bataan, and his troops go starving on. To be fair, the general would often stand outside, unprotected, when the Japanese would bomb Corregidor, and he and his family shared the same rations as his men on the island. In fact, the already thin general 
lost 25 pounds during his first month on Corregidor. Normally, this kind of situation, barely hanging on, defying the enemy, food provisions dwindling away, would have brought out the best in MacArthur, as in he would normally rise to the occasion and raise the spirits of his men with regular visits, stirring orders of the day and visiting hospitals. But that wasn't the case on Bataan, which leaves the question, why? Sadly, the true answer can never be known, as the general did not tell anyone nor write down what he was really thinking. One guess is that it killed him to see his men in such a deplorable state, and perhaps in his heart of hearts he knew that help wasn't or couldn't be on the way. However, there was one part of MacArthur that was still up and running, and that was his public relations instinct. He made it known to the American people that should anything befall him, he wanted his chief of staff, Major General Richard K. Sutherland, to take his place. Between his gestures like this and his incessant messages back to the home country, the general became the physical embodiment of American resistance to the Japanese. It didn't hurt that Life magazine put him on the cover on December 8th, 1941, to be followed by Time magazine at the end of December. And then there's this ubiquitous statistic. Between December 8th and March 11th, 1942, the General's Press Department put out 142 communiques, about 11 each week, and 109 of them only named MacArthur, no one else. Not any of his troops, not his officers, or commanders on Bataan. No, it was the general himself leading the resistance to the Japanese Empire. So, to sum up, the Americans were still in shock over Pearl Harbor, their obvious unreadiness, and the constant headlines of new Japanese conquests. But in the face of all that, there was MacArthur standing tall, and needing desperately needing something to cling to, the American public clung to him. Hence, FDR had to get him out of the Philippines and give him a grand position with a Herculean task. And MacArthur would not have wanted it any other way. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
That's yahoofinance.com. Meanwhile, on the other side of the chessboard, General Homa was making his political moves while waiting for reinforcements and an increase of food shipments. First, he put out that the Japanese had come as liberators from the white man and promised Philippine independence before the American target date of 1946. With that, a puppet government was set up, with Jorge Vargas, Quezon's former secretary, as leader. He was followed by many of the Philippine legislature and Manila's upper class, who, it has to be said, cannot be judged too harshly, as their objective was their own survival. Hence, for military, propaganda, and now political reasons, MacArthur had to leave Corregidor. And each time that General George Marshall wrote to MacArthur laying the groundwork for this, it was actually Brigadier General Dwight Eisenhower, currently the deputy for the Pacific Theater and War Plans, who was putting the actual words on paper. Eisenhower did not think much of MacArthur. He had, in fact, worked for the general in the Philippines. They disagreed politically and on the ability of the Philippine and American troops on Luzon. Most importantly, what those troops were capable of should the Japanese come calling. George Marshall generally felt the same way, but was more circumspect in his outward display, which is one reason he had the job of U.S. Army Chief of Staff. The overall military situation was paramount. There was no room for personal feelings. So, when MacArthur sent requests, really borderline orders, for Washington to attack Japanese positions in the Pacific, Eisenhower dutifully sent those to Marshall, who would give them to the president. Of course, this was not possible. But even when Vice Admiral William F. Halsey, Jr., led a raid against the enemy on the Marshall Islands, it still wasn't enough to please MacArthur. Between that attack not being enough and the situation on Bataan not getting any better anytime soon, it was clearly time for MacArthur to leave. First, President Quezon and his family departed Corregidor on the submarine Swordfish. Lieutenant Commander Chester C. Smith had left the area of Davao, the major city on Mindanao, and went to the Marivelles Harbor in southern Bataan on February 19th to pick up more torpedoes and fuel. The next day, he went to Corregidor to collect Quezon, his wife, and their three children, along with a few politicians, judges, and army officers. MacArthur saw them off. President Quezon would make his way to the United States, per FDR. After Quezon flirted with independence, dare one say, rebellion, Roosevelt wanted the Filipino leader out of the Pacific and in Washington, where he could keep an eye on him. On February 24th, the swordfish returned to Corregidor and took on High Commissioner Francis B. Sayer Sr. and his family. And... There was one more thing to be loaded onto the sub, a trunk that belonged to the general, marked valuable records and documents from my personal files. Indeed, valuable was the correct term. However the details were worked out, President Quezon and MacArthur agreed on a bonus for the general. 
Between his planned 10-year period of leading the Philippine forces, this was coming to an end soon, in early 1942, four years early because of the Japanese, along with his salary and expenses, Quezon's later stated that he was sending to MacArthur's bank, Riggs National Bank, the sum of a half million dollars. In today's money, just over eight million. Further, Major General Richard K. Sutherland, the General's Chief of Staff, was getting $75,000, and two other of MacArthur's staff received lesser amounts. One way or another, this information got back to the White House, and those who supported MacArthur stayed quiet, while others who were not fans of the General had their attitudes reinforced. Somehow, General Marshall never heard about this. And when President Kazan reached Washington, he offered Eisenhower, who was about to leave for London, the former head of the War Plans Department, $60,000. Today, that would be just over $1 million. But Eisenhower, a poor farm boy from Kansas who had little besides what the Army had gave him, said no. It was time. MacArthur ordered a B-24, if possible, but a B-17 would do, to pick him up. He also ordered the submarine Permit, commanded by Lieutenant General Rayford Goss Moon Chapel, which was currently off Surabaya Bay, Java, to come to Corregidor. Waiting with MacArthur was his wife, Jean, their four-year-old son, Arthur, and his chief of staff, Sutherland. All these had been authorized by Washington to make the trip, but this was MacArthur. So, he was also bringing along Brigadier General Harold H. George of the Army Air Corps, which pleased the military in Australia, as George had experience fighting the air wing of the enemy. Then there was the young Arthur's Cantonese Ama, or Nanny, Achu. Considering her attachment to the main family, MacArthur guessed that she would have been killed outright by the enemy if captured. Also, with these people, were 12 more who had been on Corregidor, plus one from Bataan, that being Medical Officer Major C.H. Morehouse. Though the submarine permit was en route, MacArthur decided not to wait for it, and instead would have four PT boats, or patrol torpedo boats, of Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 3 take them to Mindanao close to Del Monte Field, and from there, B-17s would fly the group the rest of the way to Australia. Which begs the question, why not wait for the submarine? Surely it was safer. The answer, a two-parter, seems to be that, one, MacArthur was claustrophobic, and two, if he had to die, better not to be buried at the bottom of the sea, but rather go out in a blaze of glory among the waves. And there would be Plenty of waves. PT-41, commanded by Lieutenant John D. Bulkley, squadron commander, picked up MacArthur, Jean, young Arthur, Achu, Sutherland, Sid Huff, who would be an aide to MacArthur for 19 years, the Dr. Morehouse, and Navy Captain Herbert James Jimmy Ray. Sutherland divided up the rest of the entourage among the three remaining PT boats. By 7.30 p.m. on March 11th, everyone in MacArthur's immediate group was on board PT-41. Jean, the general's wife, had grabbed up as many canned goods as she could 
for the journey. Meanwhile, MacArthur had aide Sid Huff remove and take on board his four-star license plates from his Jeep. Why? As the general said, we may not be able to replace them in Australia. The four PT boats met up in the waters between Marivelles and Corregidor. Then Commander Bulkley had them head west, then south, to bypass the island of Labong and the smaller islands around it. Now, these 77-foot-long boats with a 20-foot beam, meaning at its widest point, were not made for long journeys, certainly not made for comfort, and they were about to go 600 miles, if all went well. They were cheap and easy to put together, thus could be mass-produced. So, when they got into the open waters, the constant up and down spared none of the general's crew, not even the general, who tucked his gold-braided cap away and, like the rest of the passengers, emptied their bellies over the side. That night of March 11th, the four PT boats went south as best they could. The easterly wind was creating swells at least 15 feet high, which meant that MacArthur and company would spend a decent amount of time in the air as they were lifted by a wave, only to get past it, with nothing below them, so they would fall hard. And this would be repeated as the next swell came along. MacArthur later compared it to taking a trip in a concrete mixer. As midnight came, PT-41 came to a stop. Its occupants couldn't take much more. Besides, salt water was getting all over the engines, which had to be cut off and cleaned before becoming operational again. The same had happened to the other three boats, hence soon they were all separated. Still, the goal was to make for Tangayan Island off the Kuyu Island group. This would have them at least 250 miles south of Corregidor, and well outside the enemy net that was drawing ever tighter around MacArthur's former base island. As PT-41 was being made operational, Lieutenant Robert Kelly's PT-34 had pulled into a different cove that they hoped was the correct spot. As they were an hour late of the 7.30 a.m. rendezvous time the next morning, they honestly couldn't tell. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Vincent Schumacher's PT-32, now down to only one of its three engines still working, was near the end of the first part of the journey. Maybe. Who could tell? With no radar and left to dead reckoning, it was anyone's guess. Because Schumacher's boat had been going so slow, he assumed that he was bringing up the rear and that the other three boats would be waiting on him. And as he had four of MacArthur's brigadier generals on board, he needed this to go smoothly. Suddenly, one of Schumacher's lookouts spotted a vessel coming right at them. Was it a Japanese destroyer? Schumacher was only 26, but he had seen a great deal of combat in the last few months, which made everything unknown an enemy. Thus, he ordered the 50-cal machine gun manned and yelled out to get ready to fire a torpedo. Then Schumacher remembered his top priority, getting his passengers to Mindanao, not winning this engagement. Thus, he ordered the 20 55-gallon barrels of gas tied down to the deck to be thrown overboard. They were going to make a run for it. 
but just as the last barrel was heaved over, the other ship was close enough to be identified. Relieved, it was PT-41, with MacArthur on board. Schumacher had almost taken out the whole reason for this trip. The general. Bulkley, being the squadron commander, ordered Schumacher to retrieve those barrels as they would be needed, but the sea, using the barrels, played cat and mouse with them. As they could not be left for an enemy air patrol to spot them flying over, they had to be dealt with by the fifty caliber. The two small craft pulled into a cove of an island to rest. It wasn't their destination, but everyone was exhausted, and the engines needed looking after. The two women and the young Arthur tried to calm themselves from being shaken for hours. MacArthur was feeling it too, but never one to stay seated long. He paced up and down his PT boat, everyone moving to the edges to give him room. Not that he shared his feelings at this moment, but those around him could guess that the 62-year-old was as low as he ever got. The war had gone badly for him and his. Hell, it had started badly with the bombing of his airfields and the destruction of half his planes on the first day of battle. And now, here he was, tired from puking his guts out, unable to contact anyone, and wondering if they would make it to Australia alive, and probably wondering, if he did die, how would he be remembered? As a failure, that he could not protect the Philippines. No, that could not happen. Later events seemed to indicate that the man was being put through hell, and if he did survive, he would become obsessed with returning to Luzon, to liberate his men and his reputation. The world is altered by such people in such moments. Meanwhile, Bulkley was doing his own thinking. He guessed that they were just north of the rendezvous point, and since the other boats were to wait until 5 p.m. before leaving, if MacArthur and company left now, they should reach the meetup point by then. Moreover, the sub permit was to be there too, just in case the PT boats were having trouble. They had to reach Tagayanan before the others left. The good news was that when PT-41 and PT-32, i.e. MacArthur and Schumacher's boats, arrived at the cove, Kelly and his PT-34 was there, waiting, but not Ensign Anthony Akers and his PT-35. Worse, the permit was not visible either. Did something happen to the sub? MacArthur thought about his next option. Buckley told the general, as bad as things had been, the next part, making their way through the Sulu Sea to reach Mindanao, would be even worse. But there was nothing for it. He decided to move on. However, Schumacher and PT-32 would have to stay behind, as they did not have extra fuel. They would have to wait for the sub and hope for the best. MacArthur did not like changes to his plans, but it could not be helped. So, Schumacher's passengers were split between the two remaining PT boats about to head off. Then, it got worse. On their way again, an hour later, a Japanese cruiser was spotted. Bulkley ordered a wide arc around the enemy vessel, which did not pursue. He told the general that the giant swells, making their lives hell and emptying their stomachs, again, 
Even some of the sailors had probably hid them from the larger ship. But when they turned east, entering the Panay-Mindanao Passage, their misery grew as rain and thunderstorms was added to the mix. Soon, none could remember a time before they had walked on to the patrol boats. In the pitch black of night, the general went below, under the main deck, and laid down on a straw mattress, with Arthur and Jean by his side. No one could discern his current physical state. His eyes would open now and then, but he barely moved and did not talk. This was not normal for the general, who loved the sound of his own voice. Suddenly, he sat up straight and told his aide, Sid Huff, that he wanted to talk. For the next few hours, MacArthur played This Is Your Life with himself, while Sid Huff listened and nodded in the right places. The general was worried about his men on Patan and on Corregidor. He worried about the last PT boat. He wondered if this storm would consign them to the depths below. And just as suddenly, he was finished talking, telling Sid, Good night. As MacArthur talked, Bokley had got them through the night and through the worst part of their journey. Soon the sky began to brighten, which was not good, as they could now be spotted by the enemy. But Bokley was hurrying them to Gagayan Harbor, their destination. PT-41 pulled up to the dock, and the general about as disheveled as he had ever been in his entire adult life, turned to Bokley, shook his hand, and said, You have taken us out of the jaws of death. I shall not forget it. But the passenger's journey was far from over, and the danger was about to get even worse. As MacArthur walked down the dock, he was met by Brigadier General William F. Sharp, commander of the American Filipino Forces on Mindanao. The brigadier looked up at what was left of MacArthur, and gave him the straight dope. Four B-17s had left Australia to make for the nearby Del Monte airfield. These same planes had been at Clark Field and departed just before the attack, back on December 8th. The planes and crews had been busy since then, operating from Darwin, and were in desperate need of repair. During the trip north, Two of the four planes had to turn back due to engine trouble. No, not all the engines, but this was a long trip, so even one engine malfunctioning was enough to warrant a return. Then a third plane had run out of fuel, forcing it to ditch in the sea just before reaching Del Monte. No, how this happened could not be explained to the ever more exasperated general, which left a lone B-17 piloted by 2nd Lieutenant Harl Peace Jr., age 24. And even his bird was far from perfect. Its brakes had acted up upon landing. Its superchargers were not functioning properly, and its bullet holes had been patched up with flattened ration cans, which now looked like ugly scars. To say that MacArthur was less than impressed with his single surviving chariot was an understatement. He went apoplectic. How was this bucket of bolts supposed to get him and his 1,500 miles south to Australia? In the general's estimation, those who climbed aboard were consigning themselves to flames and then the depths below. Then the 62-year-old general turned his eyes 
to his would-be pilot. Did this boy even shave every day? Still fuming, MacArthur sent a radio message to General George Marshall. Considering he was scheduled to lead all Allied forces in Australia, what he was seeing was simply not good enough. The general wanted the three best planes in the United States or Hawaii with experienced crews, and he wanted them now. But the question at the moment was, who would get to MacArthur first, the newer B-17s or the Japanese, who had already landed on Mindanao at Davao, about 150 kilometers or 93 miles to the south? The latest report said that the enemy was about 30 miles away and heading north fast. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just wanted to say hello and welcome aboard to some new members and donators. Uh, As far as the new members, um, let's see here. There's David Nelson from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Stephen Ryan from Constitutional Hill, New South Wales and Australia. Edward Aldrich in Westport, Connecticut. Barbara Billinghurst in Kirkland, Washington. Michael Johnson in Hedeper, Germany. Probably saying that wrong, Michael. Sorry about that. And Daniel Harmon of Cheshire, UK. As for those who have donated, um, let's see, Paolo Rodriguez, Cambridge, UK. Douglas Forbes. Lawrence Galswick. Lawrence Waters. And as far as who has bought a Churchill mug, Jason Letcher. Hopefully, Jason, I'm saying that right, in Edwardsville, Kansas. So if anybody's interested in a Churchill mug, I've got a few more here. You can find the information on the website. Or just send me an email to uh, wwiipodcast at gmail.com and we could work everything out. So I will see you with the second part of getting MacArthur to Brisbane, Australia. And it's a pretty incredible story. And uh, I'll head that out to you as soon as I can. So as always, take care, everyone. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.